My name is Richard Morellis, and I want to welcome you to the Prison Post. This is your podcast for conversations surrounding the need to reform prisons from the perspective of formerly incarcerated people, community members, and leaders in the restorative justice movement. The Prison Post will feature an episode every Wednesday with people who are in the fight to restore lives and heal communities. And we're back. Welcome back to the Prison Post. Uh, today, we have uh, a, a friend of ours as a guest, Adnan Khan. Uh, he's the executive director and co-founder of Restore Justice. Welcome to the show, bro. Thank you, Richard uh, and Jay. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for being here. Yeah, for sure. I also want to welcome back uh, my co-host and brother, Jay, uh, Jason Bryant. Yes, sir. Uh, it's good to be back. back. Yep. Uh, he was away for a minute. Uh, I know you don't, you didn't know, but um, um, he had a... Uh, him and his wife gave birth to a child, or his wife gave birth to a child. Yeah, <laughs> she gave birth. I was just there holding her hand when she did it. Amen. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. 14 days oh, ago. Oh, man. Yeah. Yep. How two, many? Two weeks. He's two weeks old. Almost two weeks old. Yeah. So, wow. Yeah. Uh, so you, know, you know, it's such a, it's such a, um, um, a trip to have a, a child in general. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe I don't want to jump ahead. And oh, I just want to say, like, especially for someone, like, uh, with a life sentence when legally sure. – the opportunity to have a child was taken away. Sure. Um, even when they restored the family visits a little bit later, I just didn't want to raise a child in prison. But uh, but just fast forward real quick, having a child, man, in in a pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. 2020, my, my, my son was born on uh, April 27th. Oh, wow. And then two weeks later, the uprising happens. Right. So when, when my wife and I talk about um, not just his history, how he's a miracle, essentially, Uh, But then when he studies his life and the time when he was born, like 20, 30, 40 years from now, um, it's such a historic time he's living in and we're living in. So just an interesting time to have a child, man. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I I also have a 19 month old. So I'll show you a picture. Oh, wow. Yeah. So our. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, full of uh, love and exuberance and, so, and and very little sleep. <laughs> so coming out after twenty years to nineteen month old sure. and a uh, two week old, what's that like? Wow, it's uh, it's amazing. It's a uh, it's like a dream in in so many ways. Uh, you know, uh, speaking to what Anand had brought up, we as lifers, we had gotten our family visits back in two thousand seventeen. I had already been married for. Uh, four years at the time so this was an unexpected blessing and you know uh, my wife and I were were confident that freedom was coming Uh, so we we took the the chance of getting pregnant in prison and and God blessed us and uh, you know we have two beautiful boys as a result and it's just so incredibly uh, humbling and amazing to be home with them and to be a part of their lives so grateful that's awesome yeah so i know you you said you have a what five months six month old no have a, a four four month old four, four month old awesome congratulations yeah. thank you i appreciate it and i know uh, uh jay you're talking about sleep i mean being uh <laughs> waking up being well being woken up by uh correction officers oh yeah uh, for 16 years for me like yeah. uh, this is a cakewalk for oh, me absolutely. Uh, in terms of waking up you know um, but i will say that i'm i'm actually very uh fingers crossed blessed so far for him to have a very a strict sleep schedule and he like since his birth he's been amazing at it man so i'm very fortunate yeah that's good for now that's good yes sir it gets it gets a little bit more challenging when they hit the two-year mark that's what i'm dealing with with my oldest son right now he's uh, his favorite word is no 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 (laughs) like you want to go to bed no (laughs) also i can't wait yeah (laughs) 
All right. Um, I'd like to give you a little bit of a formal uh, introduction, especially for our audio audience on uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher Radio. I would like to share a little bit about you and then hear a little bit about your story, Adnan. Adnan is the executive director and co-founder of Restore Justice, which he co-founded while incarcerated. He was sentenced to 25 years to life under the felony murder rule at the age of 18. While in prison, he inspired, launched, and worked on, his, worked on the felony murder rule legislation, also known as SB 1437, with his organization, which he co-founded, Restore Justice. The bill passed, and after serving 16 years in January of 2019, Adnan was the first person resentenced under this bill that he helped create. During his incarceration, he created also First Watch, a media filmmaking project produced entirely by incarcerated men at San Quentin State Prison that still produces short films to this day. Uh, he was sentenced also, he was, his sentence was also commuted by Governor Jerry Brown in December of 2018 before he left office. He is an Art for Justice fellow and today he continues his advocacy both nationally and internationally as well. Uh, again, uh, thank you for joining us today, Adnan. I saw you and, and, and your wife at the Capitol um, last year, and um, it, it was a blessing to see you. Um, I had heard about your story while, while I was incarcerated, um, and um, thank you for all the work that you've done on the SB 1437. We've been on a couple of phone calls, and just looking at some of your Facebook lives, I realized, I said, man, me and this guy have 81 friends in common. So it's good to to have you here and um, for a good hour to hear more about your story, your organization, the work that you do today. Um, so, yeah, man, it's great to have you. Thank you, man. And uh, 81 friends in common, man. I'm surprised we didn't link up sooner. <laughs> you know? What's going on with that? Uh, um, but I'm glad. Yeah, I'm glad we're here now. Um, and, and I look forward to whenever this pandemic's over and when it's safe to really uh, connect uh, in, in person. I'm looking forward to connecting with all um, with all of you. Uh, the, uh, what I want to mention was about the capital and the advocacy. I mean, how for me, it's very powerful, just the visual of um, having people who are formerly incarcerated, once serving life or not, but just particularly for serving life, at least in my case, um, to see everyone at the capital like deep, you know, and representing and participating in democracy and wanting change. Um, one thing I want to mention, I, I think a lot of people get confused about, for me at least, um, wanting change and wanting to change the system as not being accountable. And, and it's, a, it's a very fine line, but understanding like causative factors, understanding like my childhood and, and the systemic failures that were there that led me up to making that decision that night to commit my crime. I understand that public safety isn't just a personal accountability, which is personal accountability is the main thing for me, sure. um, but, but changing uh, the system so where another child or a kid doesn't go through what I went through and hurt someone else or harm someone's family. Um, and so to see all of us understand that and we're at the state capitol uh, with legislators and, and sharing our stories and our solutions, it's just been very, very motivating and, and powerful for me to uh, be a part of with you all. Yeah, that's great, Adnan. What I'm hearing you say is that it's not either or. It's not like you need to either focus on personal responsibility or systemic, the need for systemic change. It's both and. It, it takes both to really affect positive exactly. change in the world. That's great. And I, we know that many, many people, I mean, you were in 16 years, we were both in over 20 and, and it, we know that many go there and they get locked into some unproductive types of, uh, an unproductive type of life. Some people just play chess and dominoes and work sure. out and, and, and have a job as a porter and have sure. a little ambition on, uh, on, on transforming their life. But you took another route, uh, you know, it took, you took another route, um, um, helped create your own organization in there. Obviously first watch, 
helped story, pass yeah. helped helped to pass legislation. That's <laughs> I was I was talking to Richard earlier about it, and it's yep. you know I, I did over twenty years myself, and I was pretty productive with my time, but I never thought to actually try and pass legislation that could you know affect real change. It's remarkable. Yeah. Uh, it definitely is. I'm just curious. Would, would you share a little bit about your 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 for, uh, your journey of going from prison to where you are today? Um, yeah, just so I could recap. Like, where would you want me to start from prison on or before? That would be great. Like, I think just to kind of piggyback off of what Rich was sharing. Like most people, I think there's a, a general culture in prison and kind of an attitude that like once you're there, it's like, well, I got to do my time, and I'm gonna do my time in a way that's you know comfortable whether it's playing cards whether it's you know working out but it's 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 typically not super productive but you with, with your time in prison you did some really remarkable things and i think what we're, we're asking adnan is like what was your motivation yeah like how did how did you make that happen yeah i mean there's a there's multiple angles to to that answer um for me answering that and one of them is that i don't think that i took a different route i think that at the end of my or closer to the end of my incarceration, um, some stars aligned and I was very blessed to have uh, resources and community advocates for me to do what I did. It's not like, let me just think of, uh, I want to change a law. I personally didn't change the law. It takes legislation. It takes votes. It sure. takes people talking to legislators. Um, you know, it takes someone writing the law. Just writing the law doesn't mean that it's going to get passed. Thousands and thousands of laws are written each year. Right. So there's a lot more that went into it. Um, you know, you have to convince the or, or educate the public safety committee and hopefully it gets past that in the Senate and then hopefully it gets past the appropriations committee and convince them why fiscally this is the right thing to do. Then the floor vote and then it goes to the other side and assembly. I mean, it's just a, a process that is a very lengthy and meticulous strategic process. Um, also for me, like the stars align, I will say that as well. Um, but uh, but rewind for a second. Um, I, I didn't have like a clean path. Um, you know, I, I did what we call removals when I was in a level four yard, mm -hmm. uh, acts of violence on people to for, to uh, um, promote pol uh, politics in prison and, and earn stripes, I guess you could say. I've been uh, caught with cell phones. I was selling phones and tobacco and, and introducing into the facility. I have all that, like I was written up for all of that. Um, but when we look at, when I look at why I was doing that, you know, outside looking in, it's it's, oh my gosh, you're not doing the right thing and you're a criminal still and you're still doing criminal activities. Well, for me, I just want to say that the, the moment I was sentenced to 25 to life and sent to a state level four facility, maximum security facility, the moment I stepped in my cell, I was in there with a, uh, the, the, the COs put me in the room, shut the door behind me. I still have my linen over my shoulder and there's this big six foot three Samoan gang member crip from LA is like, hey, homie, we're on lockdown, right? Mm -hmm. And I was like, What's going on? And he says, well, there's, there's basically no movement 24 hours uh, a day, seven days a week. We're going to be basically stuck in the cell uh, because a man was killed in the chapel. Mm. So think about like for me as a young man, young lifer at that, leaning over my shoulder, still standing right in front of the door inside the cell. And you, you told me out of supposedly the safest places in the prison, which is a chapel, <laughs> right. that someone was killed in there. And so, so rehabilitation, quote unquote, changing my life even though I would read, reflect, study. Um, I spent my first four years in county jail. So, so it's not like I was just county jail and then immediately prison. I did have four years in a 23 hour lockdown for four years, reading, writing, studying, whatever, right? On my own. But when I got to, okay, here's a life sentence. I'm, I'm here in a prison facility. And this is what this person is telling me. 
my immediate uh, response was survival. Right. And what survival meant in the outside world or in different facilities was very different for what it meant for me in that moment, which was, how do I survive? Where do I fit in? What does fitting in look like? What does safety within that community, that prison community that I'm part of, look like? Um, not to be bullied. Okay, I have to put in work, which means I have to do acts of violence. Sure. Uh, and then people will, will, you know, give me stripes. So my point is that I had multiple paths, which is actually like segments of one total journey. Right. And when you, when you, what year did you first go to prison, Adnan? Um, so I was arrested uh, 2003. Mm -hmm. And then it was um, beginning of 2003. I went to prison in um, 2007. So in 2007, there wasn't a whole lot of opportunities for programming. Uh, I don't think that transition had occurred yet. It wasn't until like 2011, 2012, when there started being some new opportunities to uh, participate in positive programming. Is that true? Was that true for your experience as well? Oh yeah, that was absolutely uh, true from my experience. It was very, very uh, limited or no programming. I'm thinking it was only religion um, that was the yeah. program. So you go to church, mosque, synagogue, or even, you know, at least on uh, general population yards, even going to Jewish services was dangerous for people, right? Like, because right. of prison politics. But um, that's the only, I guess, path that I that I had at that moment. Um, so it's, it's weird because it's almost like you have to pick a side either. Hey, you're going to services. Are you with us? Or are you against us? Right. And so you have to make those meticulous decisions as well. And, and going to church or, or the mosque or whatever, finding spiritual um, comfort, I guess you could say for me, um, it, it was still challenged personally and, and culturally. Like whose side are you on? Because right. it's so it's so dangerous at that. Then you have the cultural perspective, right? Uh, uh, correctional culture mm. and, and which is the administrative culture. You know, and I think the difficult part is trying to navigate all of that at the same time. I wanted program. I wanted education. I wanted a safe environment to practice that. Um, but you also but it survive. wasn't provided. And I also needed to survive. Sure. <laughs> right. And I think about I think about I, I, I went in in 1998 and, and show up in 1999 at Calipatria level four, a, a murderous mm. place. Uh, an evil place, and I've experienced the same thing. I need to survive. I need to survive. And back then, I don't remember any programs. And I remember if you went to church, the the old the the saying was amongst uh, the prison culture. Uh, I was from Southern California, so the Southerners was if you're gonna do it, do it 100. percent And if you don't, well, there's gonna be consequences. Whether it mean two on one, beating, stabbing, removal. And so, you know, I didn't have enough fear and courage to take a stand for that. I wanted to, I wanted to walk down a path of faith, but I didn't have the courage at the time. Uh, but it did come later for me. So I gave myself over to the prison politics and, 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 and did what I needed to do and, and, and to fit in and to look the part, to play the part, knowing deep down in my mind, this wasn't the life that I wanted. And uh, eventually uh, with, with my cellmate, we began using heroin. Um, uh, uh, cocaine, methamphetamines, we were injecting it. And one night I came, I was nearly on my deathbed from uh, an overdose on heroin. And in that night I called out to God, I said, God help me, I don't wanna die as a drug addict in prison. I failed my family, I failed society, uh, I failed myself, and here I am doing the same thing that got myself here, a 25 to life sentence, and here I am doing the same thing, help me, change me, and, I'll, and I won't do this anymore. And the next day I told my selling, it's been since then, since, since the end of 1999, since I've ever uh, used drugs again. And, um, and that was my aha moment. And I had to begin to take a stand against the, in a lot of times I was uh, terrified, you know, um, only by the grace of God that I believe that I, that I made it out many times. He watched over me going to the shot cars and tell him, Hey, you know, I'm not doing that anymore. Um, I'm serving God. And so, 
what I want to ask was, in that case, um, what was your aha moment? Was it a gradual process for, for someone? For some people, it's that, you know, that one Apostle Paul type moment, you know, or others, it's a gradual process. What was it like for you? You know, for me, it was definitely a combination of both. It was a, I guess you could say, aha moment. Like my incarceration, my immediate arrest was an aha moment for me. Um, but then the rest of it was gradual and, and developed, I could say. And no matter what, so, you know, one thing about when we talk about survival, for me, there's 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 layers. And I think for a lot of us, there there's layers to what survival means. There's emotional survival, physical survival, uh, mental survival, uh, and spiritual survival. And survival means fighting for life for me. It's like I have to I have to fight. There there's a there's a there's an active um, battle that's going on, and multiple battles that's consumed in one, which is me, the person, Anan. So for me to like survive, um, like I could I had the aha moment in terms of I, this is not what I want. I don't I don't want this for my life. I don't want this for my legacy. I don't want this for my family because I'm pain putting pain in my family. I don't want this for the victim and the victim's family and the community that I've harmed. That 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 wasn't. Maybe I couldn't articulate it like that the way I'm telling you now. Mm-hmm. And, and as an 18-year-old, 19-year-old, um, while fighting life sentence and not trying to get at that time the death penalty, um, it's so much to balance. It's very difficult. And the culture, um, our, our, our justice system, quote-unquote, is not, is not there to support accountability. It's not there to support um, fostering the, the emotional survival, the mental survival. Right. Um, so one, we talked about physical survival from violence, right? I walk into the cell. A guy was killed in the chapel. Now I see race riots in front of my eyes. I'm seeing people get stabbed very consistently. That that's physical survival. I'm seeing police brutality. Um, I'm seeing like like a, you know a lot of that experiencing and experiencing seeing and experiencing. Excuse me. But then from that comes um, how do I survive emotionally? And mind you, I'm coming with luggage into my incarceration as a child. You know, one thing I like to I, as a bullet point in my life. By the time I was 17, man, I was homeless. I was a parentless, homeless high school dropout. Mm-hmm. And at 18, I committed my crime um, with all those factors. So all that luggage, you know, the, the, the emotional luggage, the, the, the mental uh, luggage, even my physical conditions prior to my incarceration were sleeping in cars, parks, friends, houses, couches. And I'm bringing that in into a prison system. Right. And so so survival, again, going back to that point is I must I had an aha moment. I actually had an aha moment when I was homeless. But that didn't mean that. I had the the means and the resources to change that or to support that aha moment. Um, surviving emotionally was hard, very hard. You know, Richard, I hear you saying the drugs. I mean, that's that's to me was a was an emotional survival. Um, you know, mental survival. I need to read. I need to study. I'm a high school dropout. I need to educate myself. But there's no school. Right. There, there are, what classes can I take? Uh, how do I educate my my? You know, how can how do I become intelligent? And, and I'm talking about information and knowledge, right? Right. And then there's spiritual survival. Like I, I need, I'm dying here spiritually. I need motivation. I need inspiration. A higher power. Uh, there's a stigma that says, oh, all of a sudden you go to prison and now you're you're you believe in God, right? right? The outside looking in again, right? All of a sudden you believe in God because you're locked up. Where were you? Where was God before in your heart, right? Um, what people don't realize, and again for me, it was okay. I have a life sentence, but where do I find redemption? Who do I seek redemption from? Where do I stay spiritually alive? Exactly. Right. Where am I loved still? Where am I loved? And and religion and God, a creator, a higher power provides that. And so, you know, as I'm dying spiritually, as well as I'm surviving spiritually, I'm finding trying to find ways to uh, support my spirituality, my 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 life uh, in spirituality, you know, and then there's the, um, 
you know, uh, mind, body, soul, you know, all of those things in one as a non in a prison with a life sentence. It's complicated, man. Right. So well, at what point do you at what point do you come to uh, start working on like SB 1437, Restore Justice, First Watch? When did that time come for you? Um, it, it came to me when I was in San Quentin, when I realized there were resources available for me and people like Alex, my, my uh, uh, co-founder and Sarah, our co-founder and, and Alex, now my, my wife, um, where I felt, first of all, it was a series of motivations mm -hmm. like Senate Bill uh, SB9 um, and then Senate Bill 260, 261. For those who are listening, those are pieces of legislation um, that passed that gave people who are serving life sentences as teenagers and then they upped the age to give them relief a little bit earlier to go to parole board. But when I saw that happening and when I saw the culture outside of prison, like, wow, there's actual movement happening and changing laws. Because people like us came in when when no one cared. Right. Right. Like they said, they I, said I went in. I they said, I if you have, they said if you have a life sentence, the only way you're going home is in a pine box. That was I mean, the governor said that. Yeah, That's that a quote it. from the governor yeah. at that time. Mm -hmm. Right. So I went in with George Bush president. I went in with Arnold Schwarzenegger, governor, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And that's coming right off of uh, uh, Pete Great. Wilson, Gray Davis. Gray Davis, yeah. Mm -hmm. Sure. So so there was this, just the culture in prison. Like, like I remember when I was going through trial, um, they said, don't take any deal with a life sentence. You rather lose trial so you have an, uh, an ability to appeal, appeal it. Appeal, sure. Because, it, yeah, because then you're just stuck. You're, you know, you're going to, like you said, leave in a pine box. Right. But Richard, um, to your question is, I always knew for me, um, an appeal actually would not get me out. And the reason I, I say that, if I could just rewind um, to what got me into, into prison. So one night I'm with a group of friends and one of my friends says, hey, we know a person, uh, um, he, he has $1,000 worth of weed and in a fake drug deal, uh, we'll act like, well, since we know him and you don't, we'll set it up as if you're buying it from him and once he hands it to you, run into a car, literally sprint into a car, and we'll call up a driver and he'll drive off and we'll split the goods later. And so immediately and impulsively, I agreed to it. So when this young man came down, again, I was 18, this young man was 19, and um, he handed me the, the few bags of weed. My co-defendant, who I didn't know at that time, he was the person that was called from my friends to be a getaway driver. He pulled this young man out of the car and appeared to me as if they were fighting. It was it was um, eight o'clock p.m. It was dark outside. I even remember I got out of the car. I yelled at him like, "What are you doing? Get back in the car!" I don't. I get. What are you doing? Like we have this stuff. Why are you fighting? I'm just yelling this outside of the car. He gets back into the car. We 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 flee the scene. The next morning at two a.m., um, I was arrested. I was taken to the interrogation room, and that's when I was told that I'm being charged with robbery and murder. And I just, I just couldn't believe it. Um, mm. I couldn't believe that, like, wait, what, what, what just happened? What did you just say? Like someone died, someone, that, that young man lost their life. How, when, like, I just couldn't believe it. I remember crying hysterically. That moment in itself was traumatizing. I couldn't believe that someone, life had been lost, um, my participation in it. And so then I learned that there was this, um, that my co-defendant who was 21 years of age, bipolar schizophrenic had severe mental health conditions was not taking his medication uh and apparently concealed a knife on him because one of the agreements were like no guns knives or weapons were to be used it was like a snatch and grab and run um and so that's why it didn't make sense like where was a weapon and i just didn't it just didn't make sense to me so when i found out that my co-defendant was like
like I said, 21, bipolar, schizophrenic, had a concealed knife apparently, and he took the, uh, the life of that young man. Um, then I learned about the felony murder rule. Mm-hmm. And the felony murder rule said, in my case, if you're involved in a felony, which my case was a robbery, that I'm equally guilty of the murder, which I'm equally guilty and, and responsible for the sentence of 25 to life, the mandatory least 25 to life. So when I went through trial, for example, I was not on trial for a murder. So my trial literally started with the district attorney saying that, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, we're not here to prove that Mr. Khan committed a murder. I'll tell you right now, he did not commit a murder. Your only job is to find out if he was guilty of an intent to commit a robbery, which I was absolutely guilty of. I'm still guilty of today. Um, And so when the jury found me guilty of an intent to commit a robbery, they went home to their families, the next phase was the judge's phase, um, which carried a, a mandatory 25 to life sentence, which I was sentenced to. So going back again to your question, Richard, I want to build that uh, right. or share that for context. For I sure. always knew that that the court did not make an error, which is where how you can appeal. Right. right? An appeal is, you know what, the court made an error. There was some type of um, fault done in my process, but it really technically wasn't in mind because they did everything right according to that law. I was and am guilty of a intent to commit a robbery. So I always knew that the law would have to change for me to go home sooner than a 25 to life parole board appearance. Adnan, um, Adnan would you share yeah. this a little bit about 1437, SB 1437 and what it means, uh, who's eligible and how they're applying? Yeah, that's that's so complicated, man. Um, so Senate Bill 1437 was the short version is that that if you if there is a clear if you are quote first of all the non killer in a crime sure right if you are one a non killer in a crime but particularly under the felony murder rule mm-hmm. which says that a group of people uh, two or more people went to go commit a felony that felony can be a burglary robbery, carjacking, um, those are felonies. And without actually saying, without actually going to um, hurt someone and someone ended up dying, not in your hands, um, that's how you can grant relief if you were not the killer in a crime and your felony says that you went there to commit that felony. Now, I know these are like legal jargon and it's kind of confusing, but sadly, a lot of people don't fall under the felony murder rule because in my case, there was a clear distinction also of me not being the uh, the killer in the crime. Mm-hmm. And there was clear distinction and evidence saying that we did not go or I did not go with um, intent. To, intent to kill, sure. but intent to commit that robbery. There's another thing that we're struggling is that DAs, different type of um, district attorneys and even judges are challenging the constitutionality of the bill that was passed, which is Senate Bill 1437. So they're saying Senate Bill 1437 was done illegally. It's unconstitutional. Therefore, we are not acknowledging it and we're going to fight it. How is so it they're done illegally? Trying, they're from saying their perspective. that from their perspective, um, you know, instead of boring you with like legal stuff, yeah. there were there were propositions that were passed Prop 15 and Prop 7 40 um, some years ago that particularly deal with the um, the the LWAP or special circumstances case, which is um, reckless indifference to human life. Again, these are like legal jargon, right. but they're using laws that were passed in the past to say that that you had to do this through the vote of entire California mm-hmm. in a ballot versus going through the legislator 
which is we went through the 40 senators, 80 right. assembly members within the legend within the state legislature. What are your so, thoughts on that? They're saying so basically what they're saying is the legislature undermined the voters intent. That's what they're saying, but right. there's no legal backing to that. They're trying to find something to make it make sense, but it doesn't. Sure. But it's a it's a delay process. Right. Now, right. another thing is another thing is, uh, you know, it's clear that they know that it is it is legal. They're just they're just trying to fight it and trying to find a loophole right. um, in it. But California has 58 counties. Here's another thing that worked in my favor. Why I'm out here today is because 58 counties are not all saying that it's constitutional. There are some counties that are saying, you know what? It is constitutional. We're going to look at people's case. If they fit the law, then they deserve relief under the law if their case fits the law. Right. So for me, again, my county and the district, the head district attorneys in my county, they believe that the law um, was is constitutional. And when they when the judge looked at my case, the judge found me yes to, for this to be true. By the way, it was the same judge that sentenced me to twenty five to life, resentenced me about sixteen years later to wow. three years for the robbery. Sure. Um, so, oh, no. so, yeah, so I think this is an important conversation, and I want to reiterate the Prison Post podcast, the podcast that is for like the family members, the loved ones of the incarcerated or those who are involved in the restorative justice movement, criminal justice reform, um, prison reform, that, that, that care. And hearing your story about 1437, I'm sure there's a lot of guys that are still incarcerated who, who could qualify or would qualify or are in the courts and, and they're being shot down. Some have been released and they're, they're probably wondering like, why is this guy getting released out of San Francisco and this other guy's not getting released out of Orange County? So, um, what, what, is, what is the latest um, with, um, in the court system? Because I, I remember hearing something from the, the Attorney General of California said it is constitutional. Right. What's, right, but it's nothing, there's nothing legally binding that, that has written. It's like legally saying from now, from this day forth, it is legal. Right now, now people can assess and say uh, in certain, uh, you know, it, it's, it's flimsy based on different counties and different jurisdictions, but there isn't like one overall overall ruling um, by like a California Supreme Court that says, hey, it's legal DAs, you need to act on it. But isn't it true that right? and isn't, isn't it true that the appellate court, a higher court has ruled it to be constitutional? I think it was one. Now, I, now there's there's not the not the the higher, higher court that you need the, the approval from. And I don't want to put any misinformation out there because right. if that was the case, then people would start really getting relief around it. Right, right. Another thing that we're seeing is that DAs have found it, um, may or may not found it constitutional, but now they're offering these manslaughter deals, which is mm. nonsense, right? Like, because a manslaughter deal is not like what the law is saying. The law is saying you should only be charged for the felony. In my case, the robbery. That's why I was resentenced to three years for a robbery. And what the law says that I am not legally responsible for the murder. So to give somebody a deal, it's just another way to give someone a conviction on their record. Right. And so the district attorney's office can uh, seem like that they got a higher conviction rate. That's well, all it's about. We have a colleague and, and he qualified and was taken back to courts on 1437. The district attorney comes to the public defender and says, well, uh, we don't want to grant 1437, but we'll tell you what, we'll, we'll let him out this week as so long as he signs for 1170D. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and Jason could talk more yeah. about receiving uh, 1170D, what that, what that is from, from the secretary of CDCR, Ralph Diaz, well, you know, former secretary. But so it's either, look, you've been in 23 years, you want to continue to fight this in the courts, or you can get out today and you got to sign to manslaughter. Mm. Sure. Mm. It does seem like the DAs will use it as a strategy to maintain their conviction rate. 
um, and get people out of prison because they know they're going to lose in, in the long run mm. because the law is actually uh, constitutional. Yeah, and I was watching um, the, I don't know if it's a documentary or, or the brief uh, video that on, on your website about the, the, the Wall, was it the Wall Street Journal or New York Times? New did, York Times. That the New York mm -hmm. Times did, sorry about that, that the New York Times did. And, and you were saying that this is the last country you know, in the world that, that has a felony murder rule. And, and, and why, why do you think that they're so hell bent on keeping this law? It seems obvious. I mean, if you, if you didn't murder and if you didn't have the intent, uh, why, why should you get charged with murder? Um, you know, we, we have a very uh, punitive society. You know, one of, the, one, one of the books that was really powerful for me reading um, was by Michel Foucault. He's this French philosopher, talks a lot about government and prisons. Um, and the name of the book is called Punitive Society. He has another great one, by the way, it's called uh, Discipline and Punish, just throwing out a recommendation. But in Punitive Society, he talks about that, that there is this idea and system of control and there, there is the government that's, that's up top and it filters its control through its government agencies, prison, policing, hospitals, um, and other, you know, schools even. And so when we look at the culture of, a, of the society that we live in, it's not one of honoring redemption, second chances, help, support, right? So even when you look at the defund the police concept, if, if our police or prison system truly understood that reallocating money to children and community that need it, like they would defund themselves, right? right? But it's, it's a system of power and control and punishment that, that is, is linked to uh, uh, controlling the, the citizens or the people of, of this country. Because other than that, like we would, redemption would be, the first and foremost thing accountability would be the first and foremost thing uh, and and this idea of collectivism which is a shared accountability now we talked sure. about this in the opening of this show is like like i definitely hold myself responsible and accountable but there's also like the idea of collectivism is is how is everybody how do we hold everyone responsible when somebody fails in our society right you know a lot of european and norwegian and, and uh, um, um dutch concepts are you know when somebody commits a crime in those countries they don't just say, hey, you better, you know, something's wrong with you. We're going to hurt you and punish you to, to prove to you that something's wrong with you. What they do say is that, wow, someone committed a crime. Like, how did we as a society fail them? Right. How do, so we, they're, how they're, do we contribute to that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. How do we contribute to that? And how mm -hmm. do we as a collective help that individual and society at large? Sure. But America, sadly, is not there yet. And as you know, there is racism. There is a system of uh, uh, systemic oppression that plays into this culture. So even when you have all the way down to 1437, the Senate bill is like, like, no, we're going to give you a deal or we don't think it's constitutional. You are a murderer. You should have known better. Right. Why were you out there that night? I've heard legislators literally tell me that. Like, why were you out there that night? And it's like, I'm not I'm not excusing why I was out there that night. Right. I'm telling you that where were the social service? The, the police came when I committed a crime. Right. I just I told you I was when I committed my crime, I was parentless, homeless, high school dropout. School system failed me. Where was shelter for me when I was homeless? Um, I'm talking about support services at 17, 18 year old. And, and, and you know, where was where was like the, the things that I needed from society and the services to help me just help myself weren't available. Sure. Um, you know, so I think that is why Richard in like a very long winded way of saying that <laughs> we live in a we do live in a, a punitive society, man. And that is what needs to be changed exactly. versus also a, a supremacist society. So I have a little bit of a, a tough question for you, Adnan. Do you think that 1437 in any way could be misused by people who are actually guilty of murder? Could it possibly be? Um, yeah, man. Um, I mean, you know, it comes down to, it comes down to legality. Mm -hmm. It comes down to like your, the law. I mean, 
if, if in your case there's no there's nowhere where it says you've committed um you've committed murder you should grant you should be granted relief i mean we have multiple loopholes um we see different races or different people getting relief under uh, so murder is not one thing right like people get relief under self-defense sure. or involuntary manslaughter um th- this is very common and, and a tool used for sometimes for people who are white seriously but is it is, can it be used wrong i mean i don't know i can't i can't i can't speak on that person i can't speak on that i just i just don't know i just know that it's a law that shouldn't be around if every other country that has uh um, found it unconstitutional and right. got rid of it that once had it except for america that says a lot there right no i agree I yeah agree. uh jay would you would you be willing to share jay jay actually was in the courts sure. for 1437 sure still and, am yeah so in uh, 1999 i was charged with first degree felony murder uh i was not the shooter um and for years i had this uh this deep belief that you know i i didn't the life sentence that I received, I, it wasn't warranted. Um, so when 1437 came out, you know, I applied like a lot of people did for relief. And it took my sentencing court, uh, I think, nine months to come to the decision that I did not qualify based on the fact that the sentencing judge felt it was not constitutional. And moreover, even if it was constitutional, he felt that I was a major participant in the crime. Uh, you know, there was no, there was obviously... Um, plenty of evidence that I did not commit the murder, nor that we had the intent to go in to kill. But he felt that um, my, because I initially displayed some reluctance to go through with the crime, the robbery, the fact that I, I, I relented and I actually went through with it showed that I was a major participant who acted with reckless indifference to human life. So uh, that was my experience. Well, what was your sentence? Was it an LWAP sentence? No, it was 26 years to life. 26 years 26 to life. Mm-hmm. I had a and one. you said it was particularly it was that judge, correct? You said that was that that deemed it unconstitutional and denied yes. your motion. Yes. Your petition. Yes, I'm in the uh, court of appeals right now. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, moreover, um, as Richard spoke on earlier, I was awarded 1170D by uh, former Secretary Diaz for my behavior in prison, which the same mm-hmm. sense, the same sentencing judge who denied me on the 1437 also denied my 1170D petition from the Secretary mm-hmm. of CDC. Yeah. Uh, so, mm-hmm. so that, it, that I just share that to kind of speak to the point that what you had said earlier about like county to county, there's no real um, uniformity. Um, like one county may be, you know, very understanding of the, the value of rehabilitation, restoration, uh, laws change and, and, and certain people need to be looked at. And another county is very, like you said, very punitive. Uh, like, uh, you know, you committed a crime, you caused damage, therefore you must suffer. You yeah, must, you know. I'd like to say something on that. Like. I've been friends with, with, with Jay for over, for over a decade. <clears throat> uh, here's a guy who only had one write-up in, in all of his 20 years, um, and it was nonviolent. Here's a guy who's earned two master's degrees while he was incarcerated, one in philosophy, one in psychology. One of the best men, men that I've known, that I've ever known in my life, uh, totally transformed his life, gave back to many, many groups, whether it be the students coming in from the outside from high school, college, at-risk youth, I mean, uh, he's giving himself back, and, and, and I know from, from being a friend that, he, like you, he went there with the – Jay's hardcore on taking personal responsibility for his actions, and, and we, we firmly believe that. You know, the pod, Prison Post podcast is sponsored by the Crop Organization, and, and we believe in personal accountability and also systemic responsibility. So, so you know, he's, he's hyper-responsible, but at the same time, I know that he did not go there with the intent um, – uh, uh, to murder, but to rob. 
And, um, you know, he would take full responsibility of that in a heartbeat. And that said, you know, to, to, to be out here advocating for him and, and, and knowing that this judge just seemed to me, my opinion is just arbitrarily like, nah, Oh, 1170D um, from the secretary of CDCR recommended that he be released now. Uh, I'm good with that. I'm not even going to hear it. Oh, 1437. If you look at all the details and, and, and the changed life, including this, the secretary of CDCR saying he should be released and he, and he both got shot down. Now, if he was in San Francisco, I don't think that would have happened. So I just want to get your thoughts on that. No, I mean, first of all, man, I'm, uh, it's so sad to hear that, that it comes down to one person, one judge. And if you look at both of our cases and just compare them, right? Mm. Like my judge adhered to the law, right? Right. For whatever her reasons were. Um, and, you know, their, their role is like, they take an oath to, 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 um, you know, interpret, I guess, interpret and administer the law. Sure. Now, when it comes to all of a sudden, my situation, she did, my judge did, and your situation, they didn't, we're in the same state. Right. Right. And, and our, our, it seems like from what I'm listening to you say, like our, our case factor, the, the intent part, which, which the law re is heavily, um, is weighted on is the intent to commit the felony. Right. Um, um, it just, it's just very frustrating, uh, Richard, and like to hear, I mean, to hear that in the same state, two different judges had two different decisions on the same, on this very same or similar thing. Right. And that's the problem when you talk about systemic responsibility. That's, that's the problem. Sure. Like you got a, you got a recommendation from the head of corrections and, and that's still not enough. Like there's way more that, that says a lot about the, the judge and the system. Yeah, it says, says a lot. lot to me. And thank God that, um, uh, uh, governor Newsom, uh, yes. um, uh, granted him a commutation and now he's home with his family. And, uh, now we're out here and, 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 and building our organization to, to give back, to be of service. And let's talk about your organization restore justice. What do you guys do? I mean, I, I've looked at your website, the advocacy work, the programs in prison. Would you, would you talk about restore justice? So restore justice, um, you know, we had before restore justice became quote unquote restore justice. Um, our team was doing the, just doing this, the work. So myself, Phil Melendez was for a former lifer. Aziz who's a former lifer are on staff now with Alex, Rebecca, Sarah, um, the three people, um, women who are coming into San Quentin. And one thing that we were doing, our work has always been around, um, yes, this 1437 was kind of like, I don't want to say a side project that was like a big part, but before 1437, before that, our work was always around violence mm -hmm. and extreme sentences. And we believe that in, you know, one, we believe like our slogan is from proximity to policy and, and particularly towards life sentences, extreme sentences, and how we as a society respond to harm slash violence. And the work that we were doing was with survivors, um, people who, has, who have lost loved ones to, to homicide, and people who have committed uh, or part of those acts like myself and, and, and you both here. And so what we were doing were in San Quentin, bringing people into this facility, having these dialogues about how can we systemically make a safer society and sharing each other's um, perspectives of the survivor. Now, this is surrogate. This isn't the actual party that was harmed talking to the per actual person that who's done the harm. This is right. like a, a surrogate, right? Right. And what we realized was like, okay, here we are having these, these little events in the prison where administration has cleared people who are survivors and victims of crime to come into the facility, have these dialogues with um, people incarcerated who are serving life, and really start and open the door of healing but what we started learning was when we would speak and share and when survivors would speak and share is that they were harmed also by a system. Mm. They, they like survivors were sharing like, 
you know, the district attorney, I felt used by them to get a conviction. I was told that I'm going to get justice, but justice only meant a conviction, not healing. Right. And there was a difference between healing and conviction. And like when and that really opened our eyes to like there's there's way more. I mean, we already knew it, but to hear the anecdotal um, responses to to systemically, um, it was very powerful. So then we started including uh, district attorneys and trying to convince and have district attorneys come into this facility. Legislators. It was crazy to hear how legislators only listen and 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 use politically use one victim perspective. And when, anytime there's a victim um, perspective of lock them up, throw away the key, they would use that for their political gain. But when you hear survivors and victims of like, no, we want restorative practices. We want people to get healing inside. I don't want this person committed a, who committed a crime against my loved one to do this to someone else. But then once they understand who that person was, they realize like, wow, the system failed them as well. And my loved one will probably be still alive today if there were more resources in the community. So we started including legislators in these intimate dialogues and then that's when proximity to policy idea. came proximity to policy uh, uh came to be um and so what that's if, when when we realized we were doing this work it's like okay we need to package it we need to we, we were doing it like very loosely and we, we didn't have funding for it um and so that's when restored justice the the 501c3 the nonprofit, came to be um, while um, simultaneously working on Senate Bill 1437. What were some of the results of bringing in these uh, prosecutors and, and people who are you know, on the other side of the, the aisle of criminal justice? What were some of the results you saw? You know, I think the immediate result was like um, a wow or, or like our, our, at least our mind has been open to mm. seeing something, a different perspective. And one of the challenges were like, okay, is this a narrow perspective or is this how most people think? Right. And so it requires a little bit more. It's not a one-time event that's going to change someone's life, though we've had events really, really alter people's thinking. It has happened. Um, but the re immediate results were like, okay, we do need to look at the system a little differently. Okay, I, I'm, I'm hearing that this is way bigger than um, person commits a crime, throw them away, and that's justice for the survivor. And then that's justice for the person who committed harm. Um, so in particularly in 1437, it was huge to see how um, we were able to humanize people's stories mm -hmm. um, and, and, and people's needs. And that really helped with the 1437 law and legislation. Like it's not one story. It's not one perspective. Right. A person's not a quote unquote murderer, um, right? There's an individual who has committed violence. I mean, how many of us are the same people that we were five years ago, 10 years ago? How many of us same people we were at 15, 18, 20 years old? None of us are. We're, we're very different people. Right. Um, and so that really helped in humanizing the people that uh, these bills and pieces of, of voting legislation are, are going across people's desks. That's great. What about what about First Watch? I was looking at your website and I saw some uh, some content about this this show, First Watch. Would you tell us a little a little bit about that, Adnan? Yeah, man. First Watch is another blessed opportunity where in San Quentin we were able to provide and and um, I was able to fundraise and get equipment awesome. um, cleared through the administration mm -hmm. for incarcerated people to be the filmmakers and the journalists and tell our own stories, kind of exactly what you two are doing now, um, but with film inside. That's so cool. I remember when all this camera finally came in, I picked up the camera, I'm like, all right, how do I use this now, <laughs> right? And how do we, how do we like sure. edit videos on a computer in a prison facility, right? Sure. right. But we learned, we, you know, we learned how, um, you know, how to use cameras and become filmmakers, not incarcerated filmmakers, but filmmakers, right? Mm -hmm. I don't want to qualify us as filmmakers just because we were incarcerated, like to dilute it, 
No, we, we could be on the same path, same level of greatness that everyone else is. That's great. And the idea was like, we are the journalist. We are the camera people. We are the people who are writing this, this piece. And we are the people who are being interviewed. So it's almost like I like to equate it to Steph Curry, right? Imagine if you want to learn about the Warriors and Steph Curry was a journalist mm -hmm. and a documentarian. Wouldn't you want to hear straight from Steph Curry about what's happening with the Warriors versus someone outside trying to tell a story for them? Absolutely. So that was the way, you know, but if you take a big step back, like a huge, huge step back, and you look at the responsibility uh, and the harmful responsibility of media towards incarceration and towards policing and towards criminalizing people, um, they have had a huge role. Media has had a huge role in the way our system, our punitive system in society functions today. It goes all the way back to when they didn't have TVs and cameras or even like printing. It goes all the way back to the concept of the public display. Yeah. And when people in the villages were, were, when they committed harm, they would have these shows essentially and, and execute people in front of the public in, in the center of the market. Um, and that was a way to show you, look at this person who committed a harm. This is what they deserve. And then when the, um, um, like the wanted posters and the printing press came and the, the concept of wanted posters. I mean, there's literally postcards, man, of, of, of pictures of people being lynched. And there's a bunch of white people laughing and smiling with a body lynched from a tree. And those are postcards. So think about the concept of pictures and postcards and wanted posters right. being utilized in print to criminalize someone. Therefore, you can treat someone a certain way in an acceptable way. Right. And, and so you feel good about yourself and treating them. Then the radio came to be the audio and then video. And, and you look at the Willie Horton example. Um, you look at birth of the first birth of a nation. You look at all these movies. Um, and then you look at the 90s and 2000s of CSI, New York, Miami, whatever. Right. Law and order. You look at all these shows. Um, even when you when you when you make an, a, 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 you create a criminal. So I remember when we were a uh, quick, quick example, when we were um writing a, a storyboarding and writing a piece we're about to film while we were incarcerated mm -hmm. so we were going to do like a not a documentary like an authentic piece but more like there was acting involved so it was a it was a it was had to do with acting so i remember like when we sat in that circle like okay who who is this individual that we are looking for what does this character look like right um and, and we had to literally write the character this is the character this is how the character walks this is how the character thinks now think about the writers of law and order Right. right. They have to literally sit in a circle or in a room and say, OK, uh, who is this, this suspect? The suspect is uh, black. The suspect uh, is, is a Mexican gang member. Right. The suspect uh, sags their pants. Right. They listen to hip hop music or they have dreadlocks. And they talk they, like where, this. Where, where are they getting these ideas from? <laughs> right. And why? Right. Stereotypes. And why? Sure. But but point That's is purpose. that it is intentional. Sure. Of course. It is very intentional, scripted written out on purpose and media consumes it people consume it so here you are sitting in your in your living room mm -hmm. right and here you are sitting in, in your living room and your only source of information about people who commit crimes is this dangerous law person so look at law and order for example it's a whodunit show one hour a crime has been committed um uh, who is this person we finally found him we right. lock him up you know yeah. we take him to and, trial we lock him up and nine times out of ten he's going to have a life sentence at the end of the show Nine times out of ten, a person is going to have a life sentence and law has been restored and right. order has been restored. Right. But what happens to the watcher, the audience, 
you're filled with the suspense. Oh my gosh, who is this person? This person could be in my neighborhood. Um, this person mm-hmm. is, is probably creeping in my bushes outside right now. Mm-hmm. So when it's time to vote, right. when it's time to vote, your only form of reference is law and order sure. or that show, that, that postcard with the lynching, right? That is the problem. So, so, so sorry I, for being long. No, it's man, all good. I'm, 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 but I want to ask you, man, what's, what's the path forward in creating a new narrative? What's our path forward? What you're doing? Yeah. What you two are doing? Yeah. Impacted people controlling the media? Yeah. We got to, on the, on the one hand, we, you know, if you ask the, ask the media, I think they would say, oh, we're trying to be fair and balanced. We're just, we're just showing. But, uh, you know, um, you know, personal belief is they have their intentions and we'll have ours. And ours is, as formerly incarcerated, get out here and paint a new narrative. Mm. Paint a new narrative. Here, here, here you have right here some uh, 67 years to life at one time. And we're out here, uh, a part of organizations, serving the public, being of service, doing the, doing the work, being responsible citizens. We have been transformed. And so we want to paint a new narrative that says, that, that says, let's work together to restore. I like what you guys are doing, restore justice. I feel that your organization, our organization have a kindred, have a kindred spirit, especially the work with the with so-called uh, violent offenders. So those who committed an act of violence doesn't mean he's perpetually being violent for the rest of his life. You know, and, and we got we to gotta paint, paint a new narrative and shift the way people think about prison, redefine the way, think about pe- the way, redefine the way people think about formerly incarcerated. You know, and, and, and that brings us to, you know, like, like Prop 17 right now, you know, the right for those on parole to vote mm. and, and other legislation. I would like to hear a little bit more about your extreme sentencing, if you guys have any bills coming out on that. Because that, that is a way to, to redefine the way people think about a sentencing. And you know, I've long thought that mandatory minimums are ridiculous. Um, uh, it, it, like in your case, you know, the, oh, the law says this, so we got to give it. Even though the probation report, the probation officer's report said he ought to be paroled. He right. ought to, to be given probation. It takes, the, it takes the power out of the judge's hand, right? The, 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 the very person who, you know, is trained and is, is, is steeped in the discipline of being unbiased and, and being a judge and adjudicator of the law is powerless. Powerless. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Before I answer that question, man, I'm just letting you know I'm fired up. You guys got me fired up today. <laughs> so I apologize for my long windedness, man. Uh, um, I could talk about this all day and forever. So uh, appreciate you giving me this space. I just want to be mindful. How much time do I have to answer that question? Are we wrapping up at one or is it like, do we have time? We got about five more minutes. <laughs> so, you, so we want you to so, so that just means we're going to have to have you back on Adnan. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we, we want to answer the question and also hit on, you know, if you could prop 17, uh, prop 20 and, and ways that people could uh, be a part of what you guys are doing. Maybe your website, uh, ways to donate to your cause, what you guys are up to. So five minutes, brother. All right. Real quick. Yeah. So real quick, real quick. Um, um, as far as our goal is, we want to end extreme sentences and have alternatives to how people view um, what people need. You know, it doesn't have to be incarceration. You know, accountability can be distributed different ways um, that keeps everyone safe. But our goal is to educate people on what violence and extreme sentences is as right. far as bills and legislation. Right. Literally, literally a week or two before the pandemic, we had what's called a resolution on extreme sentencing. And our assembly member, Sydney Kumlager, she picked it up. It was going to go through the legislator. Pandemic happened. A bunch of legislators had to drop a lot of the stuff that they're doing and have urgent responses to the pandemic and employment and, and financial aid towards the employment. So we want to re, um, we're going to pick that back up. Hopefully, our goal is to pick that extreme sentencing resolution. It's not a bill. It's not a ballot measure. It's just a, a resolution that says to the legislature that something is wrong and we need to look at extreme sentencing again. In terms of Prop 17, voting for people who are on parole, 
it, people think that it's about rights and, and, and you don't have the right or you do have the right to vote or you shouldn't vote because you committed a crime. Well, I've been out of prison a year and a half. The same judge, like I mentioned, sentenced me to 25 to life, resentenced me to three years and said, I'm not putting you on parole or probation because that's excessive. So here I am. Seconds ago, I was this 25 to life, quote unquote, violent offender who deserve, doesn't deserve the right to vote. And moments later, two, three minutes later, now I'm safe for society and I have the right to vote because that one judge says that I, I, am not, I shouldn't be on parole or probation. So voting, and, and when we look at voting for people who are formerly incarcerated, particularly those who are on parole, I mean, how do you reintegrate someone into democracy and, not, uh, and tell them to participate in a society and not give them voting rights? That's how you participate in society. So it just logically doesn't make sense. It's not no, it public safety to take voting rights away. Prop 20. Prop 20 is rolling back some of the reforms that California has had. It is a police bill. Um, we know police lie all the time. Um, it's rehabilitation and rehabilitative credits that helps people understand themselves and understand what's safe for public. Um, and for to undo that, it doesn't make sense. That's actually very dangerous for public. Right. So um, be mindful. Prop 20, we don't want to undo that. We want to vote no on 20 because we want rehabilitation. Right. Um, and I think I'll end there, man. All right. How can people find you at uh, Restore Justice? So, uh, well, um, me personally, you can, I'm mostly on Twitter now. Since March, uh, Twitter has been a huge tool for me, which is A-K-H-A-N-1437, of course, the number. Uh, so my, my name again is at Acon1437, but Restore Justice is at RestoreCal.org. Um, one of the things that we have going on is people uh, is we created this canteen page on Facebook, and you can find it on our website where people give directly to donate to people to their books for canteen during this time of the pandemic. So it's, it's like if you know someone that's incarcerated, you could type in and submit their name, number, facility, and there'll be people who are donors that want to contribute and give directly to their books. Um, and, and so I want to encourage everybody to go there. Don't you don't have to donate to restore justice our org I'd rather give it to the people inside who need it right now the most awesome awesome And uh, thank you for joining us, man. We definitely have to have you back. Yes. Appreciate your time uh, Also be checking out you checking you out on Facebook live. Are you doing those every night? Uh, so far, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday at 6 p.m. Okay, Pacific. three nights a week, 6, 6 p.m. We'll be there. Hey, man, this has been another episode of the Prison Post. Uh, thank you for coming, Adnan. Peace. I appreciate you both for having me. All right. Thanks, Adnan. All right. Thank you for listening to the Prison Post, a production of the Crop Organization. We'll be sharing more stories from the world of prison reform and restorative justice, so please join us. You can listen to the Prison Post on all major podcasting platforms. Subscribe to our video cast on YouTube and like us on Facebook at The Prison Post and at Creating Restorative Opportunities and Programs.